Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For the arrogant have risen up against me, and the ruthless have sought my life, those who have no regard for God. Behold, God is my helper. It is the Lord who sustains my life. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've quoted to you from Caroline Cobb's music before, and we've actually played a few of her songs as offertories in church. In fact, her album called A Home and a Hunger, Songs of Kingdom Hope, is often what I'll listen to as I'm putting the finishing touches on a sermon. I highly recommend it. But there's one particular song of hers that's been extra sticky in my head over these last few weeks. And our assigned texts for this morning only brought it more into my mind. I want to share a little bit of it with you this morning. The song is called Eve's Lament. And it's sung from the perspective of Eve as she interacts with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And here's what Caroline Cobb sings in Eve's (coughs) Lament. I wandered far away with my love. I feel the tall grass on my legs. The sun is warm. The birds are singing. I should have run when I had the chance. I felt him sliding up beside me. His words, they played upon my pride. I felt the lie wrap all around me. I let his whisper hypnotize. And then giving voice to Satan, the tempter. Did he really say it? Why is he keeping you down? Don't you want to taste it? Freedom without him around. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to choose? You want it, don't you? This is a beautifully sung but chilling retelling of the events of Genesis 3, 1 to 5, the serpent tempts Eve by appealing to her pride. Does God really have your best interests in mind? No, he's lying to you. You won't die if you eat that fruit. You'll be like him. You don't need God anyway. You can separate good from evil all by yourself. And then, of course, Eve makes her decision, and the song continues. I took the fruit of my desire, sweet the poison in my mouth. Awake, awake the fall, the fire. The lie constricts, the curse clamps down. These lines and the title of the song, Eve's Lament registered loudly in my brain as I read not only Jesus' words to his disciples in Mark chapter 9, which we'll get to in a minute, but also as I read David's lament as he expresses it in the 54th Psalm. Eve must have lamented her giving in to temptation. And David is lamenting 
2, he writes Psalm 54 because some of his own people, Israelites of the tribe of Judah, just like him, have sold him out. These people are known as the Ziphites. They are David's own people, and David is on the run and hiding from King Saul, the king seeking to kill him. And the Ziphites actually go to Saul and reveal that David is hiding in their midst. You can read the story in 1 Samuel 23. And in the psalm, you can hear David lamenting their betrayal. For the arrogant have risen up against me, and the ruthless have sought my life. Those who have no regard for God, behold, God is my helper. It is the Lord who sustains my life. Render evil to those who spy on me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. Now, I was struck this week that though David is clearly writing about his betrayers, these other people, the Ziphites who have given him up to Saul, David's words can be applied more broadly. To be precise, I realize that his lament which is aimed specifically at his own people, accurately describes my lament, aimed at my greatest betrayer, me. And I think that's why Eve's lament has been so moving for me these last few weeks. Like Eve, try though I might, desperately as I might search, I have no one else to blame for my unfaithfulness. No one but me. As Caroline Cobb gives her words, I should have run when I had the chance. I felt him sliding up beside me. His words, they played upon my pride. I felt the lie wrap all around me. I let his whisper hypnotize. Eve knows, as Adam will know in just a moment, that there is no one else to blame. And I'm the same, though I will do anything to pass the guilt off to someone else. I am forced to admit that in the words of David from Psalm 54, I have risen up against me. I am the arrogant one. I am the one who has no regard for God. My greatest enemy is me. And your greatest enemy is you. Now, as much as that might hurt to hear, and as much as it might get our defenses up, I think it's actually good to be reminded of that from time to time, or, you know, all the time, because it's something that is so easy for us to forget. Look at the disciples in Mark chapter 9. They have just borne witness to the kind of miracles that should have locked their faithfulness in forevermore, right? In the previous chapter, Mark chapter 8, Mark has recorded Jesus feeding 4,000 people from just a few pieces of bread and fish and healing a blind man. Then Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, despite the fact that other people are calling him uh, Elijah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. And then moving into our current chapter, chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain with him, and he's transfigured before them. He becomes bright shining white, and a literal voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. 
And then just before the text that we get in our gospel this morning, Jesus heals a child possessed by an unclean spirit after the disciples have failed to cast it out. So if the disciples should have learned anything over these last couple chapters, it's that Jesus is great and they are not. But these disciples, they're so overwhelmingly human, aren't they? I have so much sympathy for them. They're so much like me. Even after all of these wonderful signs, Mark records this, beginning in chapter 9 and verse 30. Jesus and his disciples passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Can you imagine the shame that the disciples must have felt at Jesus' question? The way their ears must have burned. I can almost feel it in my own ears. Gosh, guys, that was a long walk, wasn't it? Sure was, Jesus. I noticed y'all deep in conversation back there. Almost seemed like a fight was going to break out. What were you talking about? Uh, nothing. <laughs> they have, after witnessing true greatness, supernatural greatness, time and time again, and spending company, spending time in the company of the actual Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world, they have just spent their time arguing about which one of them was the greatest. The disciples, like Eve and like me, are their own greatest enemies. Eve, too, desired greatness. That's why she believed the serpent's lie. It played upon her pride. And that pride is the same pride that the disciples are showing, arguing along the way. They all think that they are the greatest. And then when they're called on it, Jesus, who is perfectly aware of this human propensity for sinful pride and asks them a question he already knows the answer to, when the disciples are called on this, they rightly feel ashamed. They have nothing to say. This is the source of our shame, too. Ever since Adam and Eve believed the serpent's lie, the lie that Caroline Cobb sang about. Did he really say it? Why is he keeping you down? Don't you want to taste it? Freedom without him around. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to choose? You want it, don't you? Ever since we believed that lie, and then we're reminded that Almighty God does exist, we've been ashamed. 
hiding our nakedness with fig leaves. Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening and hid themselves. They were ashamed. Listen to the bridge of Eve's lament. Shame the venom running through my veins. A curse, a cancer, and my death. And every child of mine will feel the serpent's bite. Every child of mine will feel the serpent's bite. No wonder the disciples are ashamed. No wonder we are ashamed. We are children of Adam and Eve feeling the bite of that serpent. This is why hearing that the disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest burns our ears. We would do exactly the same thing. We all want to be the greatest. This is the poison of the serpent's bite, and it plagues us to this day. But just when it seems like it can't get any worse, when it seems like Eve's lament will haunt us forever, and that sin, death, and the devil have won the day, good news is proclaimed. Every child of mine, Eve admits, will feel the serpent's bite, but one will crush his head. Oh, come, she implores, and crush his head. Adam and Eve are not left in their sin. They are promised a future in in which one of Eve's descendants, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, Jesus Christ the righteous, will crush the serpent's head. And in Mark, that future has come. Now is the time. Jesus is here. Adam and Eve are not left in their sin, and Jesus doesn't leave the disciples in theirs either. He gathers them together, sits them down again, and explains to them again how the good news works. If you're good on your own, you don't need it. If you're the best or the greatest, the gospel isn't for you. But Jesus came to save sinners. Freedom comes from giving up the chase for greatness, for privilege, for status. Whoever wants to be first, says Jesus, must be last of all and servant of all. And even this isn't some secret reverse greatness, a race to the back of the line because you know that the last shall be first. Jesus isn't winking at his disciples and telling them that the real way to be the greatest is to be the last in line. He's actually breaking down the desire to be the greatest altogether. Jesus is telling the disciples what he himself is going to do. He will be last. He will die for them so that they... So that we, so that you might live. He will crush the serpent's head. Like Adam and Eve, and like those disciples, you are not left in your sin. Sinners, like you, are redeemed. The good news is that Christ 
comes to you while you are his enemy, while you are eating forbidden fruit, while you are arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus dies the death that you deserve, placing himself between God's righteous judgment of your sin and your soul. And thereby, in that victory, actually defeats sin, death, and the devil forever. He crushes the serpent's head. And then he gives that victory to you. All the spoils of the battle won. His own righteousness and his place in the family of God are yours on his account. He has won by seeming to lose. He has gained eternal life for a sinner like you by dying. We started off with a song. We're going to end with one too. The upside down nature of Christ's victory is expressed beautifully in Samuel Gandhi's 1838 hymn, His Be the Victor's Name. Listen, by weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown. Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell laid low. Made sin, he sin overthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. This is how a righteous God saves a sinful humanity. But better, this is how Jesus saves you in weakness and defeat. By being trodden down. By being made sin. By dying. And the result? When the serpent curls around your leg, when he plays upon your pride, when he whispers in your ear, you have an answer. When the vile accuser roars of all the sins you've done, all the ways you're not deserving, all the things you've gotten wrong, all the forbidden fruit you've eaten, all the times you've argued about who is the greatest, all the Eve's laments of your life, You can say, I know, and I know even more. But on account of Christ and his sacrifice for me, I am not ashamed. My Savior has crushed your head. You are defeated. And of my sins, my sins were laid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, the one who was able to bear them. He took them from me and nailed them to the cross in his own body. Of my sins, my God knoweth none. And this is the most upside down and backward thing of all. A perfectly righteous Savior gives his perfect righteousness to a profoundly needy sinner.
You. And me. Redeemed. By weakness and defeat, Jesus won the glorious crown. Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell laid low, made sin, he sin overthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that you have done, you know them well, and thousands more. Your God knoweth none. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.